Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Integrated Health Podcast. We are going to be talking today about mindfulness and education, and we're going to be talking about compassion. We have three very special guests here. Uh, but first, I would like to introduce Robert Roser, who is the chair of the Bennett Pierce Professor of Caring and Compassion. And uh, he's a thought leader in mindfulness education. He's visiting us from Penn State. And we are absolutely delighted to have you here in Boulder. Welcome, Rob. Oh, thank you. It's so good to be with you. Yeah, thanks for coming. Um, also over to my left, we have Dr. Sona Demijan, now a veteran of the Integrated Health Podcast. Good to be back, Danny. I bring her in every chance that I get. Um, and she also has a PhD at the University of Colorado. You guys know Sona if you've listened to this show before. And I have another extraordinarily special guest here, Dr. Patricia Crown, who is here with us today. Dr. Patricia Crown is a, a philanthropist here in Boulder, and she's also a PhD in psychology. Um, she has one of the largest hearts that I know and one of the smartest people I know, and she's a founder of The Shine Project, uh, which is a project that I've alluded to on this show before that Sona and I are both involved in, but we finally have PC here on the program. We're very, very excited to have you. Welcome, PC. Thank you, Danny. Good to be here. Absolutely. So, um, we're going to get right into it here with Rob, and everybody feel free to join in at any time. This is That's the style of the show. Rob, tell me a little bit about how you got into the work, and tell, tell our listeners a little bit about what you do. Sure. You know, I had my own uh, mindfulness practice for many years, and I was teaching um, in a school of education on the West Coast, and I was thinking a lot about the kinds of teaching and learning that I experienced in more of a monastic setting how we might bring some of these attention training practices and these emotion training practices into mainstream education. But at that time, there was no field of contemplative studies or contemplative science. So I kept it on the down low for many, many years. Kind of doing it underground a little bit till it started to take, take heat. Exactly. Teaching my classes in a way that would draw on some of these practices, but not really thinking that this would be something to shout out about in the world because nothing existed to make it legitimate in any way. Yeah. And so you were teaching back in like West Coast, California area? Exactly. Oh, yes. okay. Great. Stanford University and thinking about these ideas. And then it was sort of like when you're in the ocean and you're standing there and a wave kind of rolls by you and you realize, wow, there was already people in the world um, doing this work. Around 2005, I realized that. And so I joined with them thinking that um, some of these practices could really enrich and extend the scope of education um, um, in a, a fruitful way for young people. So what was happening around 2005 when you discovered there were other people? What, what else was out there at the time? Who did you find? It turned out that there was this little institute called the Mind and Life Institute in Boulder, Colorado, that had been really thinking about this work for many years, how to bring science and contemplative practitioners and philosophers together to try to generate a new body of scholarship on um, the nature of the mind and the nature of life and how we might use our understanding of them to help people be healthier and happier and more contributing to the lives of others. And so um, by chance and luck and grace, or however one attributes it, I started to work with them for four or five years. Very cool. And how did you end up at Penn State? Um, through some of the work uh, with the Mind and Life Institute, we started to um, create um, new studies and new approaches in education uh, around mindfulness and compassion, kindness, uh, altruism. And uh, there was this uh, wealthy um, 
a philanthropist at Penn State named Edna Bennett Pierce, who thought the way to get this work into the world was to endow a, a professorship that would be devoted to studying care and compassion in the world. And again, by grace or luck or whatever it is, I have the good honor to sit in that first chair. Well, something tells me it's not luck. Maybe maybe some grace. What are we finding out? Tell me the, you know, I mean, there's so many different things I'm sure that you study, but if you could think of the most surprising things to you that you've learned since you've been doing this type of work, is there anything that really sticks out to you that listeners might not know? Well, I think the capacity to change, um, our capacity for um, cultivating new skills and habits around things like our ability to work with emotion or our temper or our ability to focus our attention, the notion that those are changeable through practice, just as we can go to the gym and develop certain muscle groups by doing repetitions and sustaining our practice over time, the fact that that's true in the mental life around skills like focused attention or kindness or perspective taking, I think is really exciting. It doesn't stop when you're a little one, although there's much more capacity for change when we're small. But even all the way up to the very end of our life, there's evidence that new neurons in our memory system can be born, that the brain is constantly evolving and changing, I think is pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness is a huge word, right? Like it's a big word. It's taken on a whole bunch of different meaning. You see it sometimes marketed now in mainstream media and you see everything. But I'm thinking about somebody who's at home who might not know a whole lot about mindfulness. Miss Sona's show that we talked about some of this. Explain mindfulness as you know it, as you, as you experience it. Well, I think it's, um, it's, a, it's a set of skills probably several different skills. And I really like Dan Goleman's framing of how would we know it if we came up across a, a mindful person? And his framing initially was calm in body, uh, clear in our ability to perceive, clear in mind, and kind in heart and action. So calm, clear, kind would be one way to think about this this ability to be present and to to be mindful, to host whatever is happening in the present moment with these qualities of kindness, clarity, and openness, and welcoming and, and just seeing what's happening. In your work at Penn State, are you doing research there? Um, what Tell me a little bit about what you do there, what, what your department, as a chair, what you do at, at Penn State. Um, as, the, as the holder of this endowed chair, luckily I'm not the chair of the department, which is a totally <laughs> different responsibility, I think part of the uh, aspiration there is to plant seeds uh, around the study of care and compassion in many different areas. So we're looking at um, caring for caregivers as a key strategy. How do we support early childhood educators, nursing home workers, people who spend their life caring for others? How can we make sure we support them so they can sort of extend that work many-fold in their own lives? And then some of this work around prevention and starting earlier in education, could we cultivate some virtuous habits like kindness and empathy and perspective-taking early when the brain is still developing so that we could kind of cultivate positive habits early on without having to unlearn other habits first. So so really thinking earlier and including the caregivers is the work that I'm doing there. 
So, Rob, you and I have known each other probably 10 years at this point, and I have so um, admired the work you've done in schools and with students and teachers and school systems. And what's really fun about being here today with these amazing um, <clears throat> new colleagues and friends, uh, Danny and PC, is that we have the this incredible opportunity to be doing this work starting here in Colorado and um, that uh, is rooted in this vision that PC has. And I don't know if you want to say a couple of words about it, um, but I think just this real like genius that you bring to what kids and families and teachers need in school systems and the vision about the change that some of these practices around mindfulness and compassion can um, can help to create in schools. So um, I'd love, PC, if you wanted to say anything about kind of what your your, what what's in your heart about what we could create for kids and families and teachers? And, and then, Rob, to hear a little bit more about some of the studies you've done, because they've been amazing. Um, sure. It's interesting, Rob, because what, what you just shared, a piece of it is exactly um, what's in my heart, which is, from my experience in the schools and in the mental health system, trying to understand and help through early prevention and detection, kids as young as kindergartners, which is what we're focusing on in this project, using mindfulness, using kindness, using compassion, um, role modeling, training the teachers, involving the parents, as many people in the community as we can touch, and helping these kids learn these skills as early as possible to help them be the most successful they can be later on in life, whether it be emotionally, academically, socially. And so to hear you talk about it back in 2005, and there wasn't quite exactly a label on it, um, is fascinating and exciting because that's what was in my heart, which was why wait? until the kids are in high school for something that we could have addressed much earlier in schools and been there to help them and role model and teach them. Yes, it's, it's sort of uncommon wisdom, the ounce of prevention, pound of cure, but it, it really um, could pay off both in human well-being terms and um, economic returns. So it's so exciting that you're at that place too. Um, of thinking about a world where we could, you know, create a lot of goodness and virtue early on so that we can think about a planet and a future uh, that's very hopeful. How did you, in looking at mindfulness, come across the words compassion and kindness? Because when we looked at the research, that was right there and that was shown to be a huge factor influencing the changes that you're talking about. Um, was there research done? Did you do it yourself? Uh, my own thinking, and, and this draws from my limited understanding of the wisdom traditions that we're drawing upon, is we can almost think about mindfulness and compassion as two wings of the same bird, so that our mindfulness gives us um, 
a capacity to have some insight into what's going on so that we can make uh, try to do good but with 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 wise intentions so that the goodness that we want to see in the world can come to fruition and on the other hand we can be as wise as possible but if our heart is dry if it isn't moistened uh, with compassion then we may not actually ever act at all so so I think from the beginning my own teachers and my own sense of it has been that that these two qualities are, are intimately uh, related to each other. Is that your sense? Uh... Absolutely, absolutely. And um, just sitting here and, and watching you and listening to you talk, it's very clear that you practice um, those traits. You're very sweet. Okay. She's also very humble. But one, one of the things that I would say is that because, you know, PC, that's Patricia Crown, for those of you who don't know, and I call her Peace, so I'm going to just call her that for now. Uh, Peace, you know, had a vision for a long time. And she and I used to go to, she was kind enough to invite me to Nuggets games and, and go sit and watch watch basketball with her. And we'd have conversations. Well, about, that's because not a lot of people wanted to go. <laughs> <laughs> you guys can count me in. Sorry, sorry. They're really good seats. But anyway, so, so I'm going to these games, and the company was fantastic as well. So we're going awesome. to these games, and we're talking about you know, what's in your heart and what, what are the things that you're doing? I, and I was kind of, if I have any role in helping PC, maybe it's that I push because I could see she was had an abundance of vision. She had an abundance of vision and she had ideas that she really wanted to bring into the world. So I sort of tried my best to harness that. And PC, and I say this with, with the utmost respect, is a wild mind with huge compassion. So, so harnessing that energy and bringing it to fruition and, 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 and narrowing that down to a vision, that became one project that, she, that we started to work on. And then we got introduced to all these other people because it's sort of like, okay, well, here's in general what, what you want to do. And it's all the elements that we've already spoken about within mindfulness, but we didn't really have a name for it, right? And we did have to narrow it down to what was reasonable and practical right. for research purposes. In that intersona, and we brought it into the university, and we talked about all this stuff. So that's the SHINE project, and we'll, we'll start talking more and more about that in, in, in future shows. But this, what's beautiful about this is that when I, you know, there's multiple visions, and there's multiple different ways to approach all this stuff. To me, what's the most astounding and beautiful part about it is that it comes back to kindness. Really, at the, at the end of the day, the, the, the wanting to have compassion, PC saying, I, I want students to feel like there's somebody there for them. I want people to know that, you can, that, that there's someone there to listen, that you're okay. I compare that to when I hear other experts talking who have been in this, and it comes back down over and over again to compassionate caregivers create compassionate students create compassionate communities, you know? And so that leads me back kind of coming around full circle. The question I had is that, you know, you've been talking a lot about, uh, you're talking about caregivers and both in nursing homes and schools and stuff. Are there modalities? Are there curriculum? Is there things that are in place now that kind of help teach this to people? And if so, kind of what does that look like? Like what are the important elements? Yeah, for for like a teacher who's listening or right. to this, like what what do they? What's important for them to know about in terms of their own learning? Yes. Um, 
Well, um, I, I kind of sense, PC, that you had a wild mind when I first met you, and, and, uh, and the big heart is coming through. <laughs> um, I think um, seeing each other and seeing what is needed, seeing is the first step in mindfulness, right? That we need to recognize each other and really see each other, and in that seeing, sort of remind each other that we're here in the right universe and that we're here together to support each other and, as, as a famous teacher once said, walk each other home, as it were. So, so we actually sometimes teach teachers this beautiful um, uh, Western Africa greeting where you, you basically say, when you meet a student, for instance, I see you, and then the student learns that they can say, and I am here, and I see you. And then the teacher responds, and I am here. And, awesome. and people awesome. in that culture, they really believe that's how we make the world together, by, by seeing each other with deep love and deep respect. So, so there are so many practices that can support that quality of being present to each other, whether it's a breathing practices that allow us to settle our mind and our body so that we can be present there are practices that really tune us into the somatic sensations in the body so we can be aware pretty quickly of, of feelings that we're having, whether they're generous or um, afflicted feelings, so that we can work with them if we need to. And then there are other beautiful practices at the interpersonal level, mindful listening, where we try to teach people that you can listen without needing to think about how to respond just listening and, and see what the effect of that is on the other. And then finally, I would say, and, and Sona and her, many of her colleagues in clinical science, we've, we've all been working towards this, um, has helped develop these compassion practices where we really start to learn how to cultivate um, kindness for other people, kindness for our very own selves, and even remembering the people who have cared for us, the lineage of care that we exist in, just even remembering that can be a, a kind of practice that can help uplift us. So, so many, much creativity going on there here with Sona's lab and other places, trying to think about different ways of cultivating these skills. Rob, do you think this has been going on for a long time in a number of different areas? In listening to you, I'm thinking of different words which are in the present and accepting and role modeling and non-judgmental. And it feels like it's been put into words that are researchable and that people are more understanding of. I'm so happy to have met you and all of you because I feel like we've been born into a time where there's both great need and the possibility for doing this work. There are words for it. There are fields of science. There is national institutes um, perhaps uh, funding this research. And yet, as you know, this is, um, this, is a, this is a deep river that has run under almost all cultures and all history that that this moment now is, is pretty much what we have to work with, and now, and now, and now. And um, I think what we're doing is we're raising that 
up um, in, a, in an age where perhaps some of the traditional religious traditions are not as common, at least in our country, raising that up again for people to see these qualities that make a life worth living and perhaps offering them in these new ways to people, given some of the old ways are changing, I would say. In some ways, it's like simplifying it down. It's not easy, but it's simple, mm-hmm. as I heard Sona say in one of her podcasts. And for me, it just made sense to work in the schools because we're kids all day. And you want the people involved in their lives, the teachers, the bus drivers, the lunch servers, mm-hmm. the coaches, the brownie leaders. And you've taken it far beyond just the schools to anyone in a caretaking position. I, I think um, this was really the charge that I understand the Dalai Lama gave a group of scientists in the year 2000 in a life, a mind and life meeting in Dharamsala, India. There was a conversation about if these practices have value and merit, let us bring them forth into the culture um, so that more people can gain access to them. And then the question arose, well, which people? And they probably discussed it. I wasn't there. And, and the outcome was we should probably help all of the people who help so many other people because that could be a strategy of multiplicative impact that if I can help one teacher, he or she may be able to impart that kindness and those qualities to 30 children. So I think we should have thrown in the hairdressers and the bartenders as well as the social workers because all of those people are caring for so many others. And if they're caring for 30 students and students start begin to embody this, those students go into the world as kinder individuals and that spreads out. And it's... uh, you know, there's a Van Jones, you know, is on mm-hmm. CNN. He has a, a thing called hashtag love army. And I love that because it's this idea that that you're really your best defense really is love and compassion and and, and bringing that into the world. You're going to say something. Sam. Oh, I was just going to say one of the things that's been so um so like extra delightful about this work is from the very beginning, PC said, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it as part of a team working on this project. And that team's got to bring people in a really integrative way from different faculty members, from different departments and different areas of expertise. And students have to be involved and you guys need to really be out there and connected in really deep, meaningful, real ways with teachers and schools. And so you have been so consistent about like break down the silos and um, I think it's such an important part of doing this work and I've heard you say that too Rob is that in your work in educational settings those kinds of that silo structure where people are just alone is part of the problem and that's part of the culture we have to change so yes I mean I think we live in a I, I would so agree Sonia I think my own sense is We live in a time with a lot of social fragmentation and social dislocation. That is, things are sort of um, not integrated and people are feeling a bit alone. And and so I do think um, walking the talk in the work in the way that I saw you do with your beautiful and diverse group today where people are talking across different disciplines with different languages and different ideas and there's a space 
that's holding all of that and allowing all of that to be seen, so much creative potential can come out of that kind of seeing and holding. So I'm, I'm very excited for the Shine Project, and I think you have a very um, creative group of people to really help manifest your beautiful vision into the world, PC. What was important to me and that I'm so passionate about is that it was obvious that it should be anyone involved in the kids' lives. Um, and as we began to talk, Sona and Danny and I, so many things happened as a result of our interaction and then with the team that we kept bouncing ideas off each other and that's where a lot of the ideas came about. And if we're trying to teach kids not that you're not alone and to trust other people, and especially before when you were talking about the people involved in their lives, I wanted to throw in and kids with each other. I mean, I think that's critical, how they treat each other when we don't see it, when we're not around. And working as a team and showing compassion and kindness and trusting others and seeing others is core. You know, I'm, I'm struck with this idea that um, it seems interesting sometimes that because a lot of the mindfulness tradition comes from different parts of the world, India certainly, all, all over, and yet inter, like you mentioned, it interlopes uh, really with many different traditions. And the, the mind might go to religious traditions in that way. But really beyond this, what, what I see, because I think people get caught up on that, like, well, then it's this religion or it's that religion. And Lord knows we have enough arguing about religion and stuff in the world. What The concepts of what this is, what mindfulness at its root is, is really about compassion and kindness and breathing and presence. And really all traditions in one way or another i could any any that i've been part really speak to that in that moment of that sacred moment and the sacred or communion or you could go on and on and on but what i'm curious about is how how does it continue to evolve past uh religious ideology for people right because there's that's a stunt of mindfulness oh you mean that you know sitting on a cushion not a, you know like somehow that's <laughs> bad or something I, how do we institutionalize kindness how do we institutionalize and make it part of the bigger picture? I mean, that's one of the things that we've been talking about um, as a movement, I suppose, but not in a movement that's in your face. It's just this idea that there's nothing to argue about. We're talking about basic values that human beings, I think, are innate, have innately, that they're actually already there. It's just the noise makes us think we don't have it. <laughs> Oh, I was going to – I think it's such an excellent question, Danny. And I think, Rob, you've been doing some of the work to, to actually change whole schools and school systems in Oregon and Washington. I think that, that actually speaks directly to that question. You can cough. You can cough. <laughs> Part of us being compassionate is allowing you to yes, cough. Rob so has a cold, and I can very the most cough. compassionate group, and I want this to be <laughs> Thank you for coming here. Do you need a drink or something? No, I'm good. And that's why for me, it, it's so important to start young before they learn 
the defensive skills that prevent letting people in, feeling safe, before they learn um, protection or defiance or um, unable to control their impulses, if they can learn the healthier, the more productive um, skills from the beginning, then that's all they know. Yes. I mean, they're going to come into conflict, no doubt, but the way they handle the conflict, and they can teach another student or a parent or whomever they're involved with. Yeah, it's so beautiful. We often get stories. Um, we did a little study of uh, kindergarten through third graders in Vancouver, Washington, and there's inevitably stories about the little ones coming into class and reminding their teacher that we haven't done the breathing practice and so the teacher has to stop and do it or another child taking it home and teaching their parents how to relax when they see that they're being upset. So there, there's some, there's wisdom everywhere at every age and, and in the ability to take up these practices. And I, I do think people who are involved in translational research like Sona and I, where we're looking um, at very important transitional events in the life of a family, having a child and, and making that transition and, and with all of the new joys and, and challenges that it brings, how can we work with them skillfully, sending your child off to school, which is hard not just on the child, of course, but the, the family system and and how can we make that transitional event right there be a place where they can learn some skills? Not that they don't have to go to school or that they can avoid suffering or challenges, as you say, but that they have a community and the kinds of tools that they need to, to face that and to work with it and to grow through it. Um, and I think what we think is we imagine, probably all of us here, in a generation or in two generations, if we could just keep doing this, what kind of a world could we imagine where kids knew what kindness was and empathy and perspective taking? They, they could use the word. They could use words instead of fists to solve conflicts. What kind of world would that be over time if we could scale this? I, I think that's the joy and the vision that maybe we're all holding in our hearts here. Or perhaps show the behavior at a young age and then know what the word is later. Exactly. And, and more importantly, what you said, re, um, I'm really interested in getting, helping children, not getting, supporting children in um, identifying the intrinsically pleasing quality of being kind and of service to others. They're really, you don't need to motivate it that much, but directing children's attention to what it feels like in their bodies when they do that. I mean, many of them, maybe you saw in this little video of, with children, will describe that there's nothing that makes me as happy as being kind to others. And that's their direct experience. That's not a parroting of some lesson in a book or anything. It's, it's what they've discovered for themselves. And so the last part I would say, Danny, to your question is, we live in a time among digital natives where perhaps some of the old ways of transmitting these values are not as effective. I mean, any child can ask any question they want to Google at any moment of the day. They need a direct, experiential, exploratory way to 
understand the inner life, perhaps. And, and this could fill that gap if, if maybe some of those other ways of learning just aren't working right now for mm-hmm. them. This is my view. I, I don't know if no, it's No, I true. love it. Yeah. A human. Right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Relational, you know, it's a community. And I, and I think you're right. I think we have gotten, in many ways, there's some beautiful things about the digital age and the ability to communicate on a widespread basis. But human beings not looking at one another is one of the disadvantages that I see because we go there first instead of asking, hey, mom, hey, dad, hey, brother, how does this look, you know? Why um, is the sky blue? Or- <laughs> right, right. I mean, I and I, I did a book report with my eight-year-old last night, and, you know, and I had to keep redirecting away from the computer where we were at. I was saying, great, we're going to put it in there, but tell me about the story. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you were experiencing. Tell me what you read, you know? And he said, Dad, go away. But that's a whole other. <laughs> that's a different I, podcast. That's a different podcast. I, I used to have a, <laughs> called Dad, Go Away. I used to story. have a fear that when <clears throat> my kids had friends over and they were all watching a movie or whatever, and, of course, they were all on their phones, and the power would go out, and I was pretty sure that they would all disappear because the idea of sitting and talking to each other was not a common reaction. It just wasn't something that they were used to. Everything was through the phone or computer. Yeah, and it, I mean, and it's kind of interesting. We see in treatment and... Um, especially for adolescents and young adults, what ends up happening in order to kind of come back to some center or to rediscover what's already there. It's not like you're teaching somebody what's already there. It's just removing initially the distractions, right? So in wilderness therapy, for example, the phones go away and there's a fire and there's the land and there's the circle. But what's interesting to me is that, and this is kind of my own kind of interest in this work, is that I've been working with adolescents. Like you have to get in trouble to get that. Like you have to, you have to like, you have do to something like, wrong. you have to do something wrong. You have to get in yeah. a lot of trouble in order to get experience this it. wonderful experience of a wilderness community, you know. And then almost every kid who goes through it says, "Wow, that was amazing for me. I learned so much about myself. I learned something else." So. I have this fantasy, right, that we don't have to wait until people are in trouble to give them what they already most desperately need, which is connection and compassion for one another. Yeah. Rob, I have a question. Um, since this was new, labeled, um, have you found resistance going into schools? Um, one of our concerns is, is a teacher going to feel like they have one more thing to do, one more thing to add to the agenda, something else to learn, um, perhaps with parents, more to do when they get home, they're already overwhelmed, or with working with the elderly, learning something new and different when they, they're used to doing it, for example, a teacher with tenure, 20 years. Have you found that to be a problem? Yeah, I think, um, as we all can appreciate, time is always a a precious commodity, especially in education these days. So I think part of um, meeting that kind of a challenge falls on the scientists and the practitioners to figure out how to design these programs from the outset so they kind of meet needs that educators have 
and and could fit into the DNA of the life of the school. And we had some nice discussion about this. I think our first round was to offer these as standalone programs, and I think there's some value in that. I think in the future we might think about how to integrate these um, and and make these part of things that are already working in schools that might make them a bit better, because I do think we need to be sensitive to the to the mill of reform, just another thing, another new curriculum that that many teachers have experienced in our sort of pendulum swing of educational reform in the country. I think there will always be um, issues around how also to bring this skillfully into schools to make sure that we value um, and abide by the separation of church and state. And I, I think these programs um, adopt a language that is is consistent with that. Um, and then, you know, for parents who want to opt out, I do think these are in some sense invitational and not indoctrinational programs. So we always want to preserve obviously the rights of parents and the family to have their children do what they feel is right. And I think that's always um, a negotiation and part of the communication with the community and the school. So so I think we want to address concerns. I think they're there. I think there's also a lot of positive response and it's it's all part of it. Speaks a lot to the necessity of research though, right? Because yes. if you have research which is saying, hey, um, this isn't just some woo-woo thing. This is through these types of practices, we see direct results which impact overall wellness, performance, teacher burnout, a whole bunch of different things, right? I mean, I think that that's the necessity of where, you know, it's kind of the intuitive sense and in, in, in experience. We know this works. If you practice things yourself, you have that sense of it. But then being able to show people, not in a way to talk them into anything, but just really the evidence of this creates happier people. You're happier. They're going to want it. Yeah. Because they, we can show them that it's going to make their lives easier, their teaching easier, their kids happier. I think that's so true. And I think both Sona and I have found in our travels that really um, – um, bringing in the science as a way to support understanding and and people's acceptance of it is important. Linking it to um, literal changes we sometimes can see in the the systems of the brain that help um, subserve some of this mental training around focused attention. All of that can make it more real. And also the genuine need that I think we all see for to be a little bit more connected a little bit less stressed, a little bit uh, more focused. I think that desire for perhaps something more, I think we sense that in, in our world and in our country today. So I think there's also those motivations there that we can sort of tap into and be aware of. I think one of the places we're um, starting with our work is really listening deeply to teachers and parents and guardians and families and kids um, and others in school systems about, you know, what what do they see as their needs and their hopes and, um, and their challenges? And I would be really interested from the work that you've done, what do you hear most often from teachers and folks in school systems? What are they telling you that they they want support and guidance and training and what do they see um, in their communications with you? What are you hearing? Yeah. 
I, I think there are um, a lot of teachers are uh, aware that the the role has changed quite a lot over the past few decades, that the kinds of, um, let's say, social-emotional needs that children bring to school are there and become part of the teacher role. So, so sort of f- some facility and skills around working with different kinds of emotional states is there. Um, I think we know for about the last 10 or 15 years we've been undergoing a very heavy sort of national reform strategy with a lot of testing and curricular changes. So I think teachers feel a little bit stressed about those things and perhaps some of them miss the idea of play and free time and and these other critical aspects of children's education that we seem to have pushed to the periphery a bit. And um, I think that the community in our society, demography has changed our society greatly. So the the teaching force is still primarily European-American middle-class women and the um, school population is pretty much 50% um, ethnic minorities and 50% European-American. So, and, and that's changed radically over the last 10 or 20 years. So, so whole communities have seen their student bodies change. And I think, you know, relating to those cultural differences is another challenge there that we want to address in this next phase of the work here. I'm interested in, from both of you, in other parts of the world, what are some other models? What are some other models that are out there that deal with uh, learning, social-emotional learning in different ways? I'm curious. I've heard a little, we've heard a little bit about Vancouver and some other spots, but is there anything that sticks out like to you guys in your travels that you've heard about, stories? Um, I was going to say, I don't even think we necessarily have to go to other parts of the world for models. And that's part of what we're wanting to, you know, as the first phase of the Shine Project is really to understand what's happening in the schools and the classrooms right here in Colorado. Because um, I think there are some amazing teachers and amazing, you know, programs and amazing schools right here that we can learn a lot from. And um, so I'm, I, I'm sure there are wonderful um, programs and, and models around the world, but I also think we have them right here. And it's, a, it's really about um, identifying and, and understanding and then developing partnerships that will help help grow that. I would agree, and I think um, we see programs in the summertime where we know a lot of learning loss can happen, especially if children come from disadvantaged families. So I think we should think about summertime as a really key mm-hmm. um, place. We talked a little about after-school programs, which is really critical because that two to five uh, time point in the afternoon is actually when a lot of the, uh, do you guys remember the risky behavior occurs? <laughs> I'm looking at you guys. <laughs> a lot of mischief, so having wholesome activities. Why are you looking at Danny? <laughs> nice, yeah, what? Nice. what? Look at my eye on you too. <laughs> is it the lighting? Because you've had uh, teenagers. 20 year olds. There are things that are modeled on outward bound, um, uh, which is a mindfulness journey as well. So I, I think there are many models and many contexts in which we can imagine getting this work into the world. And I think that's critical because so many of our other institutions in society are 
I think we need to be creative about the different avenues to which to deliver this. And, and I think they exist. And, and one of the things with the Shine Project that we're trying to look at is to be sensitive to the needs of the cultures and the communities that we're working in because it differs. And the teachers and the family unit, which may have changed, um, you know, one, one of the things that we want to know from them, what works for you? Do you know why? What doesn't work? Um, what would you like to do? And, and really just asking them from their experiences. I think it's so beautiful, and it's part of that seeing um, those of, who are in front of us and their gifts and and not adopting implicitly um, this model of 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 giving to in a you know an act where they're receiving, but really that we're co-creating this, and that wisdom and kindness can come from every quarter. So I, I love we did so much deep listening today to the different stakeholders who are in the room and really trying to surface how could this work for them? Where would it, you know, where do you have an issue that maybe we could help work with you on rather than sort of just trying to fit it in <laughs> somewhere. And being aware of the interaction, yeah. trying certain things, seeing if it works, why, how, where. Taking a mindful learning approach to the whole thing and, and knowing that failure is part of success and it's not something to be avoided. And then the last thing I would say is I really do think, and I love your attention to this PC, being aware that we live in a diverse society and really acknowledging that in these new efforts to bring these new forms of education in the world, how do we make sure that they speak to the kinds of uh, diverse um, groups and uh, people of different backgrounds that we have in our society. And I think, again, there's a really nice team here that's, that's devoted to that inter interconnection of diversity and common humanity in our work on mindfulness and compassion. So I just had this thought, and I'll throw it out there. I'm curious what your wish would be. I'm curious what your wish would be. Looking forward, looking at everything, if you had a wish and about this work moving forward, what would your wish be? Can he have three? Anybody. And, 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 <laughs> and, I'm, three? and I'm asking that of our group here. I'm so. trying not to say something about the electoral college. Oh. <laughs> no. Besides reversing the election, what would be your oh, wish? Don't go there. <laughs> My wish would be what you've heard me say before, is that every kid have the message that they're okay, they're not alone, and there's someone to talk to the acceptance and the importance of feeling safe wherever they are, no matter what they've been through in the present. Your turn. Well, I, I think my aspiration is um, to cultivate the soil for people to awaken and to connect to each other uh, in a way that the planet itself seems to be requiring now. It, it seems like there's a need for us to come together and to raise our awareness to a new level of collective activity so that we can really save our beautiful home and um, 
solve some of the ongoing strife and war that's plagued us for as long as there's been history. So, so how in a small way could we each contribute to a very broad and long-term movement to keep history on track towards flourishing for the beautiful planet and flourishing for all of its creatures, humans, of course, but also the, the birds and the swimmies and the four-leggeds and the slithering ones and all of them. This would be my hope. That's, That's beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. That's mine, too. It's funny you said <laughs> you, took the words, you took the words right out of my mouth. I, okay, this is pre-election, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Sona? Yeah, you, you um, reminded me, actually, on... Uh, I w- my daughter was um, distressed uh, in the context of recent politics, and... I said to her, um, you know, the force of love will prevail. And I I do, I deeply believe that. And I think that that is, that's my wish and my conviction and um, my, my personal intention um, is to you know, use all the resources and gifts and, you know, kind of opportunities and good fortune that I've had in my life to um, to bring together people who have these amazing different sources of knowledge and expertise um, who can work together to use the tools of science and partnership to help identify ways that will, you know, allow that force of love to prevail. And and I believe, as you were saying earlier, PC, you know, the earlier we can do that in kids' and families' lives, the the more time we allow that to to take root in the soil and to flourish and and um, it's never too early. It's never too late. And, like, let's get busy. That's kind of my – let's get going. <laughs> That's <laughs> here, my here. wish. <laughs> and if we start early and, and teach these things, what I said to my kids is you're the millenniums. This is your country it is in your hands to make it what you want. So yep. with good early experiences and love and teamwork. I think we've run out of my, – my, my wish would be – I have a lot of them. But if I had to put it in one word or two or three <laughs> – I would say that it's really that I think that we're living into in a in a fantasy of du- dual duality really and I actually think that our most recent political situation is actually the kind of manifestation of shadow and the embodiment of the duality and so and I'm sure that people on another side of where my belief was saw Obama as that or whatever but really the greatest delusion of all is that there's two sides. And 
that there's rights and there's wrong and there's this and there's that. And, and, and I just feel like people desperately need to be able to communicate with one another and share varying points of view. Um, and I think our inability as a culture to tolerate other people's points of view has led us to where we are today which is that there's one right, there's one wrong, and if you voted for this person, you're absolutely racist, and if you voted for this person, you're an elite liberal. You know, I, I just think it's gotten really out of hand. So I have very strong opinions, of course, about my own beliefs, but I feel like it's equally important that I listen to others. So I feel, if I had a wish, it's really for that sort of black and white dualistic thinking to to begin to fade and, and have a deeper, more meaningful conversation um, about the oneness of it all, which is what I think is the actual truth beneath it. Instead of being a fight, there can be acceptance yeah. and listening and compassion and kindness. Yeah. We're good at fighting. Human beings are really good at fighting. We've been killing each other forever. Fight and, or flight. And it just continues to happen. And 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 I hold the dream that there's there's something beyond that. I, I hold it deep in my heart. And, and that goodness will prevail. Yeah. Well, that seems like a good place to wrap up. What are you going to say, Sana? I thought you were going to say that you wanted the Cubs to win again next year. <laughs> nope. I had my I, – I, I, that would be greedy. I, I would love it. I, I have no problem with the Cubs winning a World Series again. That was last year's wish. Okay. Well, if we're going to wish, year, I, wanna, I, I wanna, wish I wanna share that. Super I want to share that love with everybody in a much broader way. Yeah. Can Thank, we end with a poem? Sure would love that. Uh, this is a uh, Afghan-born Persian poet by Ru- named Rumi. He says, "Stay together, friends. Don't scatter and sleep. Our friendship is made of being awake." That's beautiful. Thank you so Thank much you. for being here. Yes, my pleasure. So nice to share this with you all. Thank, Thank you, you Rob. Rob. <laughs>